listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. And I'm Tiffany Manner. It is Mental Health Monday here on The Coffee Hour. We are continuing our conversations with Dr. Stephen Saunders on his great book, Martin Luther, on mental health. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, Dr. Stephen Saunders. He's the Schneider Endowed Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Marquette University and also author of Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Saunders, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thank you for having me. So last time we talked a little bit about adolescents, youth and young adults and social media, and I'd like to continue that conversation more in just a moment. I want to understand some concepts that you've shared in your book. And before we do that, I think it's important for us to share just a helpful disclaimer. While Dr. Saunders is a professional clinical psychologist and very pleased to offer ideas and suggestions about mental health and mental health problems in our conversations today and in the future, it's important to understand uh, one of Dr. Saunders' pieces of advice, and that is to get professional professional help when you need it. Nothing said in today's program or in future episodes should be taken as therapy or treatment or as a substitute for personal consultation with a professional. So if you need help, by all means, seek out that help. And we can, well, that book actually talks about finding resources for help as well. So we'll get to that in a future episode. So Dr. Saunders, let's talk about thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. As you've described in the book, these are important when it comes to understanding mental health. What's the relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors and mental health? Well, I, I think that thoughts, I think a way to think about how people are, what people are, is that inside we have the way we think, how we are thinking our thoughts, we have our emotions, our feelings, and we behave, we have our actions, which are a result of how we are thinking. We act how we choose, how we plan to act. Um, Then outside of us, in our world, we have our roles and our relationships. One of my roles is as a professor at Marquette University. Part of that role is to teach, is to supervise students, is to attend meetings. I also have a role as a parent to three lovely children. I'm a grandparent to four wonderful grandchildren. Those are roles, but of course I have a relationship. I have a role as a husband, but I have a relationship with my wife. If I don't fulfill my role as husband, which is to be dedicated and to be kind and considerate and loving, then our relationship will suffer. Someone, my relationship with my children is again to be loving and supportive, but as a parent, I had a role, part of my role, my responsibility to them was to be a disciplinarian, to take them to church, and etc. We have a good relationship, but all, so roles and relationships are, are, are very closely related, but they are somewhat distinguished. And as I said in the second episode, and, and the first episode, we define someone as having a mental illness if the mental illness is causing impairment. And impairment always goes with roles and relationships. Every so often I get someone to ask me, how do you know if you have a drinking problem? And I think it's actually, I say it's pretty simple. If your drinking is causing a problem, 
then you have a drinking problem. If someone's drinking is causing a problem in their role, they're not getting to work on time or not going at all, or their relationships, their their spouse is disgusted with them or so disappointed with them. If if drink if if the behavior of drinking is causing a problem in roles and relationships, then you have a drinking problem. So the roles and relationships are outside of us. They're our world. Inside of us are the way we think, how we feel, and what we do. And they are related. Each of them influences the other. So for example, if I think that my colleague doesn't like me, I'm going to feel badly when I'm when I'm with him, I'm going to feel anxious because I'm thinking this person doesn't like me. You know, I'm going to feel sad that they don't like me. Or if I think to myself and many persons with depression do, one of the symptoms of depression is low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is basically thinking badly of yourself. If someone thinks badly of themselves, they're going to feel sad and they're going to, you know, they're, they're not going to do well, by the way, in their behavior. So thinking is most clearly associated with feeling, but thinking also influences how we act. If I think my colleague doesn't like me and I see her coming down the hall towards me, I'm going to take the hole that goes to the left to avoid that person because I don't want her to scowl at me because, you know, so I see her, I think she doesn't like me. That makes me feel nervous. That nervousness makes me act in a way to avoid her. Unfortunately, by the way, by avoiding her, I don't get the chance for her to say to me, hi, Steve, how was your break? What did you do for, for Thanksgiving? What did you do for Christmas? You know, did you see family? In other words, I don't give her the chance to be nice to me and to contradict what I think, to contradict what I think with the actual truth, which is no, actually the truth is she does like me the way that I think was incorrect. People with depression, especially if it's biologically based, they will feel depressed. That feeling will cause them to behave in a certain way, such as to isolate Martin Luther wrote about, you know, when he was sequestered with hidden away in Wartburg Castle, because the Pope had said, you know, anyone who kills this guy gets a free pass to heaven, basically. So they 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 hustled him and sequestered him in Wartburg Castle, and he wrote later to one of his one of his friends, when I went there, I was really depressed, and then I stayed in my room by myself and my depression got worse. So his depression caused him to isolate. That isolation made his depression worse. You know, the the, the emotion, you know, it, anyone who's had a serious illness, you know, gotten, gotten COVID really badly or gotten a bad flu or even a bad cold, you feel so lousy and you think to yourself, oh, I can't wait for this to get over over with. Or you think to yourself, you know, I, I, I can't stand this. You know, just our emotions affect how we think, how we behave. As Luther said, his behavior influenced his emotion. By isolating, he caused his depression to become even worse. Me avoiding my colleague causes me to continue this 
allows me to continue to think she doesn't like me. You know, anyone who's helped a child overcome anxiety about a dog or maybe swimming, you know, children, they should be afraid of dogs until they realize the dog is friendly. But some children get really, really fearful around dogs. Children need to learn to swim, so but they're scared to, to try. What do we do? Well, we make them engage in the behavior. Come in, you know, you, we show them. We see that, let them see. Look, the dog is very friendly. See, and we have them approach the dog and pet the dog. And their behavior changes the way they think. But we take them in the pool and we're very careful with them and we support them and we let have them kick and, and move their arms and they they realize, oh, I can do this. And they, they realize realization is a form of thinking. So behaviors affect the way we think. So the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act are related to each other. Probably a lot of your listeners have heard the term cognitive behavior therapy. What therapists do is we help people who are depressed or anxious or experiencing some sort of a mental health problem, help couples in the same way. We help them to realize how it is that they are thinking. And we help them to change their thinking to be more accurate. She doesn't like me, I see about my colleague. My therapist says, well, actually, find an excuse to go and talk to her and see if it's true that she doesn't like you just by looking at how she's behaving, what she says to you. I don't want to do it. I'd rather avoid her. But my therapist says I got to do it. So I go and go into her office and I talk to her and she says, why don't you sit down? And then we have an hour long conversation about nothing and everything. And she's always liked me. I just somehow got the idea, the thought that she didn't, but the thought was wrong. Therapy focuses on the way people think. And by the way, Luther did this all the time in his letters. He said, beware of your thinking. Don't listen to your thinking. Again, amazing advice, 500 years prior to the invention of modern therapy. But therapists help people to realize what they're thinking and in a sense to see if what they're thinking is actually accurate or perhaps needs to be changed to think differently. Likewise, the behavior part of cognitive behavior therapy, therapists help people to change their behavior to be more healthy. One of the best things people with depression can do is exercise. Exercise is by definition a behavior. Go for a walk, you know, take, take up easy weightlifting, buy, purchase a stationary bicycle. Doesn't have to be real intense, just really any form of exercise regularly during the week. And we see people's depression basically disappear after a couple weeks of this. So cognitive behavior therapy is about changing the way people feel. Also changes the way people are acting with with their roles and relationships, the way they the way we think about others and our jobs, you know, can affect how well we do in them. So those three the the inside us, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, and then outside of us, our roles and our relationships all intimately related. 
You're listening to Mental Health Monday on the Coffee Hour. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Saunders. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Tiffany Manor. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Tiffany Manor. Well, we've been learning a lot about mental health problems, mental illness. We've talked a lot about youth. I'm going to hand it back to you because I've been. Uh, I'll hand it back to you, Tiffany, because I've been asking all the questions here. So, are, do you have a question you're ready to? Yeah, absolutely, we, Dr. Saunders. As you were describing our thoughts, our emotions, and our behaviors, and, and how those are related to mental health and impact how we interact with with people in our lives. You know, it, it occurred to me, what about social media, right? So how does social media, and you, you referenced in our last episode, technology and how that's yeah, changed some incidents of, of mental health problems and in, in recent years. So, you know, what does social media's impact on our thoughts, our emo- emotions and our behaviors? It's not good, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, um, okay. <laughs> well, the you know, so I'm going to talk briefly about adults. Uh, you know, you know those who can probably have their own kids, and and uh, you know, I would encourage adults to just be more aware of their use of again these these smartphones. Smartphones, by definition, have access to the internet, and the internet is so full of information. But also, it's a weird way to say it, but the internet is full of our friends, and so we can be in constant contact with our phone. Excuse me, I should have said we can be in constant contact with our friends. Actually, I I did that purposely, which is that we're talking to our phones. And it's really great to catch up with a, a husband or a wife or a friend you haven't seen in a while. But, you know, when it's sort of constant, we're talking to our phone and not the person in front of us. I challenge adults, or I, I challenge the, the listeners, you know, next time you're out, I saw this just the other day at a coffee shop in town here, this, this, this couple, he was dressed for work and she looked also to be dressed for work and she was looking around the coffee shop drinking her coffee and you can guess what he was doing he was on his phone answering his email and it just kind of 
it made me a little bit sad for her. They seemed to have a fine relationship, but, you know, my guess was they had gone out purposely to have coffee together, and he spent the whole time not being with her. He was he was with his phone, not with her. So if adults, especially if you're a parent, and especially if you're a parent and, you know, I, you know, I, not going to say you should, but if you're having regular meals with your with your kids, the, the, the term that you'll hear is be present. You know, it, the phone will still be working if you go back to it after a half hour of dinner. But to really be present for your sake, for your children's sake, especially if they're adolescents, but for your adolescent's sake in the sense that they get to experience that you are really interested in what they're going through, that you're not on your phone looking at your phone, ignore, basically ignoring them, which is what it ends up being. By the way, adolescents do it to each other. You know, they, 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 there's a term for it where you're with someone, but you're not with them because you get interrupted by something more important than them that flashed up on your phone. I would really be encourage listeners to just be aware of that. Challenge each other, challenge ourselves, challenge our our loved ones to actually just be here with us for the duration of this meal, this coffee hour, this you know whatever it is. To to not to not be constantly checking to see if there's something someone more interesting that you can be talking to. Adolescents go through this as well. The smartphone is bad for adolescents, mental health for that reason. We we do need, they really do need a break from the attention of their friends. It's even more pathological than that though, these these smartphones. Practically every app that they communicate to each other with has a counter, has a has a little sub app application that counts how well they're doing. Facebook gets the thumbs up sign. How many thumbs up have you gotten on your Facebook posting? Instagram has something similar. How many times have you has your Instagram post been approved or liked or whatever it is, you you can talk to, it wouldn't take you very long to find a couple of adolescents, just one adolescent, and probably female, because females are more socially attuned than our males. Females are, therefore, by the way, they're much more likely to have become depressed and anxious in the last few years. This This trend of increasing anxiety, depression is especially hitting girls. Would it be pretty easy to find an adolescent girl and ask her, how well is your Instagram post going? How well is your Instagram going? You can even find one who could say to you, well, on Monday, I'm going to compare how well I did on Instagram to how well my friend did on Instagram. Well, how will you know? Well, it's right here. She'll have 58 things I'll have 56 means she did better than I did it's it, you know earlier last week I mentioned that 
the social media is partly, or rather the, the increase in depression, anxiety among children, I strongly believe is partly related to how much we are measuring them. But now they're measuring themselves. They're measuring their own popularity on Instagram, on Snapchat, on on applications I'm pretty sure I don't even know the name of. They're, they're, they're inventing new applications all the time. And they can see how popular or how unpopular, less popular, comparing popularity. I'm not as popular as others, and I need to step it up. Do this after this episode, any, any listener out there. Go to your computer and put in the Google search engine. Improve Instagram picture. There are thousands, probably tens of thousands of applications where you can take a photo of yourself to put on Instagram, but you can eliminate all the blemishes. You can make the photo look perfect. How to create a perfect Instagram profile. There's tens of thousands of pages of advice for this and kids are going to them because they feel compelled to go to them because they don't want to be left out. They don't want to be left behind. They want to be popular. I wanted to be popular. Everyone wants to be popular and it becomes really salient in adolescence about age 12 for girls, about age 13 for boys. Boys are always well behind in social issues. And now we have these supercomputers, these devices that they carry around all day, every day, including weekends, including Sundays, including during church services. And they're looking at them. And if they're not looking at them, they're anxious because they're not looking at them because, because they want to be popular. And this is how they know they are popular or not popular. Do this also. Ask an adolescent how they're feeling and what they think about their phone, what they think about their smartphone. And in particular, ask, are you tired? And you'll hear adolescents, so many adolescents will say, I am so tired of having to do this. Having. I'm so tired that I'm required to do this. I'm, it's just exhausting. They'll say, I wish I could stop. It's really, it's a, it's a, and, and again, it's not just me saying this. I'm not just the cranky old guy on the lawn telling people to get off, although I do that. No, the, the, the research is pretty clear. There's a fellow by the name of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Years ago, he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, and he and his colleagues have documented that this crisis in mental health is really related to the increased use of cell phones. And now the question is, what is it that cell phones are doing? But we can see what they're doing. With just about two minutes left, we know that that technology and social media are embedded in our culture. So for that parent of that that tween or that teenager, that adolescent, what what advice might you have for them, especially knowing that your child's friends are all going to have, or many of them are going to have access to social media or devices, not all of them, but several of them. How do you, what advice do you have for parents when it comes to adolescence and technology and social media today, particularly 
when it comes to their mental health? That's such a great question, Andy, and I, I, I glad you asked that because it's important to, to talk about. The advice cannot be never let them on their cell phone. The advice cannot be never buy them a cell phone. The, the, this technology is here and it's, it's probably, it's not going to go away. It, the advice rather is teach them, be aware of what the cell phones are doing and teach them how to use them in a healthy fashion. You know, we can look at almost any technology and initially at least it was, it, it, it was dangerous, you know, cars, you know, invent cars, suddenly we have car crashes. And so we develop tires, we develop better brakes, we develop the airbags. We, this is, this is brand new technology. It's a decade old and it, it, it got, it's gotten past us. It's gotten out of, uh, you know, we're, we're slowly starting to realize what it is that's happening. So the advice is teach your children, this is what your cell phones are doing and teach your children healthy model for them. And that's why I said I challenge listeners to put their cell phone down during meals with, with their friends and their families, and especially with their children. Put it aside, tell them to do the same model for them, healthy use, that you're not always on it, that when you, you know, if you take your child to the playground, how about you watch your child play and see what they're like and see, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to as opposed to being on the, the cell phone. But teach them healthy use. So we know that we know that a lot of adolescents have become depressed, anxious because of these things, or those who are prone to depression and anxiety are more depressed and anxious because of these smartphones. But there's really interesting research suggesting that if the adolescent balances real face-to-face friendships and interactions, if they, use, if they have that about as much as they have online or virtual friendships, they don't get depressed and anxious. So it's those who are using it primarily for their social interactions that seem to be at the most risk. Educate yourself about these things. Teach your children these things. You're not, you're not going to say, can't advise that anyone say stop using your cell phone ever because it's not going to happen. But encourage your schools to not allow children to have cell phones during class. You know, that, that even between class, you know, they can check their phones over lunch, perhaps after school is over. But, you know, this notion, you know, that there's this notion that a lot of parents have, I, yeah, I need this in order to keep my child safe. Mm, that's probably not true. Your child is generally safe at school. And if something terrible happens at the school, it's best to let the adults that are there try to handle it rather than having them reach out to you by phone. That's probably going to cause more disruption than anything else. So again, the advice isn't make them give it up, take it away from them, but rather teach them healthy use, encourage them to use it with with moderation. In the same way that you know, the, the, those of us who who like to drink a beer or a wine, sometimes we do it in moderation. There are a lot of people who overdo it. 
very, very similar here. Teach them how to use it in a healthy manner, and it can actually be a great benefit to them, not not a, a detriment to their mental health. Our guest today, Dr. Stephen Saunders, the Schneider Endowed Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Marquette University, is also author of Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Saunders, thank you for being our guest on The Coffee Hour. You're very welcome. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. And I'm Tiffany Manor. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.